Thanks, Phil. And good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany as we gather to worship both here in the sanctuary, also online, also across the street in the chapel. Let's take a moment. We'll pray together as we uh, finish our series on women in the Bible, and then we'll begin a new series next week. Father, thank you that we have these moments together, the beauty of the day, in the quiet of the sanctuary that is this space. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning and more than teach us, Father. I pray for responsive hearts that we might live into our calling to be lovers of you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. How many have read The Velveteen Rabbit in here? So some, not enough apparently. I'm gonna give you a synopsis here because it's, it really uh, articulates what we're doing in our time together in the text this morning. This little boy gets a toy rabbit for Christmas and, and the boy never plays with it. And then as it's sitting on the shelf, the other toys are making fun of the rabbit because it's neglected. And then one night when the toy the boy normally sleeps with goes missing, uh, his Nana brings him the rabbit and from that moment on they're inseparable. And then the rabbit has a conversation with another toy I mean, it's fantasy, you understand. Uh, another toy called the Skin Horse is an old, seasoned, wise toy uh, who reveals the profound mystery that toys that are loved become real. And now I quote from the book, real isn't how you're made, said the Skin Horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the Skin Horse, for he was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? Or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who need to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. <laughs> your eyes have dropped out. You get loose in the joints and shabby, but none of these things matter because once you're real, you can't be ugly. <laughs> That's so beautiful. <laughs> you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. If I could only preach one sermon, if I were going to die tomorrow, and, like, and I hope not, but if I were... What's the one thing I want to share with you? This is it, what we're looking at today. Because here's the one truth. You're made to both receive and give love. And it's the giving and receiving of love that makes you real, that enables you to blossom and become the person God had in mind when God created you. Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God. It's the one thing above everything else. John 4, in the New Testament, Jesus says, hey, uh, God is seeking those who worship God in spirit and truth. It's the one thing God wants. The Father seeks such worshipers. Get this, and you get the life for which you're created, and you become real. Miss this, and regardless of your wealth or intellect or education or connections or uh, political affiliations or any other thing, you miss the life for which you're created if you don't become a lavish lover of God. That's what we're talking about this morning. What does it mean to love God? So the point of today's story isn't only that this is the most important thing, but it's that people like us who know our Bibles well and go to church can completely miss the point. Very easily, actually. So very simple this morning. We look at the story and then the lessons from the story. And we begin by looking at the story. There's a, the, the key players in the story are the sinful woman and Simon the Pharisee and Jesus. Let's look for a moment at the sinful woman. Verse 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster 
uh, flask of ointment. So here's the woman. Uh, like, she's called a sinful woman, likely a prostitute. Nobody chose prostitution as a career. It was the result, likely, of being unmarried, which uh, could have happened for lots of reasons. But in the first century, an unmarried woman, in all likelihood, is also an illiterate woman, basically unemployable. And there you are. She has only this as a choice for her livelihood. By the way, this is still the reality in much of the world today. Uh, women uh, forced to uh, sell their bodies. Now, as a result, hated by other women, used by men, objectified by everybody, nobody really sees her as a person, let alone a person made in the image of God, and as a result of this, she's lived a life of immense pain and shame and anger in some combination, and then she shows up at this party, hosted by Simon the Pharisee, and by the way, it was a custom that when a rabbi uh, was uh, at a meal being hosted by someone, this meal would generally take place in an outdoor courtyard because that's where the evening meal was held among people with means. And, and the pu- if, a, if a rabbi's at a party, the, it's open to the public. The public is free to come and stand around uh, where the people are reclining and eating and listen to the wisdom that's uh, falling from the lips of the teacher. So Simon, the Pharisee, is not alarmed that the woman is there. He's just alarmed that Jesus doesn't perceive what kind of a woman she is. And on another occasion, Jesus is invited to eat at a, at a Pharisee's house and finds a man standing in front of him suffering from a disease. He heals him. It's common that people would kind of, they're not crashing the party is the point, right? This is common. So early in the meal, there's no focus on the woman. Simon might feel uncomfortable about her being there, but he's not going to kick her out. But the focus is clearly on Jesus and his words. And what's happening is they're not sitting in chairs. They're, they're reclining. They're laying on their side on an elbow. So you can picture Jesus on his side, eating with one hand, propped up on an elbow, his feet behind him. And then this woman is standing at the feet of Jesus. And as she begins to listen to Jesus, um, she, begins, she begins to weep, right? So... As Jesus is talking, her love for him begins to overflow in these visible displays of love. Tears, gratitude, tears of gratitude, letting her hair down, which was an act symbolizing complete devotion to that one. Like you only let your hair down in, uh, with one with whom you are uh, uh, committed in a, in a relationship. And so the letting down of the hair symbolizes devotion and transparency and commitment. I will be with you is what she's saying. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. She's weeping and wetting his feet with her tears and begins to wipe the feet with her hair, a sign of deep submission, this acknowledgement that this one that she loves is greater than her. And then she begins kissing his feet, also a mark of sub- submission. It's not a sexual thing. I want to make that clear. In the culture, kissing feet was considered a common mark of reverence offered to teachers out of respect, not sexual, but intimate. And these acts are done by her in the presence of these men. And the fact that they're done by her is scandalous because of who she is. So here's the deal. She would have been judged by the others in the room, judged as being unworthy. And then finally, she anoints his feet with perfume. Once this flask of perfume is opened the scent would be detected by everyone in the, in the area. 
And while Jesus has been the center of focus up to now, because he's been teaching, all eyes turn to the woman. She's kneeling at Jesus' feet. She's wiping, caressing his feet with her long hair, kissing his feet with her lips, pouring perfume on his feet. The very intimacy of her attentions appeared to many of the guests as shocking. And then you add to that the woman's reputation in the community, and the whole thing's scandalous. So that's, that's this kind of the story of the woman. Now, Here's what happens. Simon's assessment of the situation. Simon watches this whole scene unfold. And verse 39, he says to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. So Simon acknowledges Jesus as a teacher, but has invited him over to kind of assess whether, in fact, he's also a prophet, right? As some claim. Uh, and uh, what's interesting is that he doesn't condemn the actions of touching uh, Jesus, per se, the woman's actions. What he condemns is that the fact that if Jesus is a prophet, he, he would have known that she's a sinner and forbade her touching of him. And he didn't, so he clearly doesn't know, so he's clearly not a prophet. So, so here's Simon, he has everything figured out. All he needs to do is apply a few Bible texts about being unclean and a few social traditions of the situation and the question of whether or not Jesus is a prophet, boom, solved. He's got her figured out. He's got the woman figured out. He's used his keen intellect and theological education to assess these two. Here's the only problem. He's wrong and wrong on both counts. And then Jesus tells a story that both indicts the religious leader and elevates the status of the woman in front of everybody in the room who's in the midst of judging the woman. He turns the tables on everyone present, uh, and he, he gives this kind of parable about two debtors. And then in verse uh, uh, 44, he says to Simon, as he's looking at the woman, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Right? That's a rhetorical question because the answer is no. He's labeled her. He's put her in a bin. He's judged her, but he hasn't seen her. And then Jesus says, in response to his own rhetorical question, have, do you see this woman? This is what he says. I entered my house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's wet her feet with my tears. You gave me no kiss. She hasn't ceased, uh, ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with ointment. In other words, here's what he's saying. Uh, you didn't even give me customary baseline respect. Simon, you invited me into your house. No anointing. No uh, cleansing of the feet, no kiss. She's done it all, and not only done it, but done it lavishly. She gives me extravagant love. That's what he says. So, end of story. Now, what do we learn from the story? Very important, very, very important what we learn. We learn about love and seeing. We learn about pride and blindness. Let's talk about love and seeing. Here's what Jesus says regarding the woman. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much. Verse 47. And when he says she loves much, he's saying that she actually she's living into the fullness of what is actually the calling for all humans. Deuteronomy 6. What's your main calling? Your main calling is not intellectual, is not financial, is not political, is not ecclesiological. Your main calling is you loving God with every fiber of your being and doing so outwardly, lavishly, <laughs> loving God. So she's living into her, the fullness of her calling. Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God. How? With all your being, all your heart, all your soul, your mind, all your strength, love. And by the way, love is not intellectual assent. 
Love displays, presents as acts of devotion. You know, checking off in your mind a list. Oh yeah, I believe in the deity of Christ and his virgin birth and his resurrection and his death on a cross for me and his coming again and the judgment of everybody. That's not love. That's a sense. Love is acts of devotion. And that's why this woman is elevated and commended because of an act of devotion. The challenge, of course, is that acts of devotion are costly. Here's the deal. When, like when you love somebody lavishly, other people judge you. That's what happens. But she's judged by her expression of love. When you follow someone out of love and devotion, you, that person might take you places you don't want to go. When, when, you, when you love outwardly, other people will say, look at that. It, it'll be a little, quote-unquote, scandalous. My son-in-law, uh, when he, he met my daughter who lives in Germany and started dating her, and on their six-month anniversary of the first date, she walks into her classroom, she teaches English in, in a little school in Germany, and it's a little school, so everybody knows everybody's business, right? She walks into a classroom, 180 flowers, right? Most of them roses. It would have been 180 roses, but he couldn't even find 180 roses. So here's all these, all these flowers all over the place, and he busts in and does whatever he does. And, and, and you know, I love you and all this, all this stuff. And so now, within this whole community, it's the talk of the whole, the whole school, right? Oh, Look at him, you know, and some people, who knows what people said? Huh, a little over the top, don't you think? I mean, they're not even married. 180 flowers? What are you, what's, who knows what was said? Here's the point. No one, no one doubted he loves her. No one doubted it. Why? Lavish love. Like, everyone knew he loved her. Does anyone know you love Jesus? Or are you so proper and so private and so hidden that you don't express. This is the deal. Expressing love for Jesus is way more important to her than what people think of her. So this woman knows that she's being judged. She knows this kind of vulnerability is going to cause people to talk about her. In today's language, she'd probably say, you know what, this isn't actually a safe place for me to share. So I think I'm going to wait until the party's over. I'm going to stand outside, and when Jesus uh, is walking away, I'm going to slip him a thank you note. That, and that will call it love. Oh no. When the heart is full, the love is outward. And she's, she's okay with that. Expressing love for Christ is what matters most to her. And the question I have to ask, and you need to ask, is this, what matters most to you? What matters most to me? For, for many of us, too often, what matters most, honestly, is our reputation. And this isn't a Ballard problem or a Scandinavian problem, like a, or a Seattle problem. This is a problem. All the way back in Scripture, John 17, uh, 7, 13, people are discussing the identity of Jesus, and uh, they're like this, who, you know, is he a prophet, is he a teacher? And they're debating, but no one would uh, openly declare their devotion to Jesus. Why? For fear of the Jews, John 7, 13. Nicodemus, when he wants to discuss, have a discussion with Jesus, when does he come? At night, so that no one would see him. There are people who are afraid to confess sin. There are people who are afraid to weep tears of conviction. There are people who are afraid to come forward and sign these books for fear that They'll, someone will think they have leprosy. Like we're afraid of public expression of love and yet public expression is a very important thing 
And the Bible says to us, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of people is a trap. Isaiah 51, fear not the reproach of people. Don't worry about what anyone thinks. If your heart is overflowing with gratitude, express it. That's the Bible. Why? Because you're called to love God. And of course, the challenge is we live in a culture that, that values image more than substance. And if I value image more than substance, I will fear vulnerability. I will. And I'll fear any behavior that would undermine my image as strong and, and, and competent and together. And I'd be afraid of expressing myself publicly for fear of being perceived as needy. Even if what I'm coming forward for isn't need but gratitude. Our church often tells us that listening is more important than responding in any public way. Even though all through the history of the church, public response is the most powerful testimony that God is at work in a community. And this is why when Jesus called people, he called people not in private, but in public. Billy Graham used to say it all the time. When God calls a person, God calls them publicly to make a public statement so that people know, oh, I stand with Christ and I'm standing. And so when I listen, but subdue my heart's desire to respond publicly, What's controlling me is the fear of other people. And when the fear of other people is controlling me, I'm resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. And then, then I'm missing the opportunity uh, to become real. I'm, I'm missing the opportunity to become the person God wants me to be, a person overflowing with love. That's a calling. So I have to overcome the fear of what people think. And, and that happens when, like the woman, I see that God has met me in some way. God's met me. God's healed me. God's guided me. God's cared for me. God's forgiven me. God's moved me. And when I see, something begins to well up inside me. When I really see, gratitude begins to, to, to flow. And in her case, she'd clearly been met in great suffering and need, and so her heart is overflowing. She's not alone in the Bible. There's lots of examples of people... Uh, overflowing with worship, and these are, God loves when that happens. You may not know the story in 2 Samuel 6. David recovers the Ark of the Covenant. Like, this is kind of, I'm going to call it God in a box if you're not theologically educated, but don't worry about it. It's whatever. He brings God's box back from the Philistines to Jerusalem. And as he's coming back... He's so overwhelmed with gratitude that God has provided victory and that the ark, which was stolen, has now been recovered. This is what it says. It says, David danced with all his might before the Lord. So you, you, can you picture it? David is so overwhelmed with gratitude, he's, he's dancing. Now, I would, I would dance, but I'm terrible at dancing. And I don't even like dancing at weddings because people take pictures of me and then they post them and then I, I'm embarrassed. It's terrible. So I'm not... A, not a dancer, but David, maybe he, wasn't, maybe he wasn't a dancer either. The point isn't that he danced well. The point is what? Do you understand? That he danced. The point when you're singing on a Sunday morning isn't that you sing well. The point is that you sing. He's singing. He's dancing with, and this is what it says, with all his might. So forgive this, but whatever it looked like for him, that's what he's doing. He's all in. Look what God has done. Man. And then, you know, look at Job, lament, Jeremiah, lament, Peter, jumping out of the boat, swimming to be with Jesus. And, oh, by the way, 
My predecessor here at Bethany Community Church, Pastor John McCullough, he cried way more than me. I attended here as a college student, and I say to people, the best sermon I've ever heard, the best sermon I've ever heard. He had just returned from India, and he got up here with a diary from his trip to India to read out of his diary, and he, he couldn't even read. He just began to weep. It was so powerful. I mean, I don't remember what I said last week, <laughs> but I remember that sermon, 1978. Why? <sighs> Overflow. Worship. Know that, listen, every time you come forward for prayer, every time you lift your hands, every time you write a prayer book, every time you come down here and you just get on your knees and you say, thank you, God, that I'm alive, your outflowing of gratitude or intercession or confession is not only an act of love, it's a gift to the body. And by the way, it's the life for which you're created. You're created to be overflowing, uh, coming to Jesus with everything. Your response, a gift to God, a gift to the community. And this woman shows us the way. Now, in contrast, let's look at uh, Simon because he represents pride and blindness. Because here's what happens. Simon observes the scene and he responds, verse 39, when, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this act of love. He said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Uh, and then, uh, interesting, uh, this cracks me up. Verse 40, Jesus answering said to him. Now just think about that for a minute. Because Simon, it says, he didn't say that out loud. It said, Simon said to himself, if this man were a prophet. And then, uh, it says, Jesus answered him. <laughs> now, the very fact that he answered him shows that he is a prophet, right? <laughs> but whatever, not the point in the moment. He answered him, and this is what he said. Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, say it. And then Jesus tells this story about two debtors. One basically owed a year's wage. One owed a day's wage. But the principle of the story is this. It doesn't matter whether you owe a year's wage or a day's wage. None of them could repay the debt. And then the, the, the owner of the debt forgave the debt. And, he, and then Jesus says, hey, who would love more? And Simon says, the one who had the greater debt, right? And we tend to think that the point of the story then, for we who've kind of lived, quote unquote, squeaky clean lives, is we better run out and sin up a storm so that we can be grateful, Right? But here, listen, not the point at all. Because here's the thing, I don't care if you've ever let alcohol touch your lips, let alone be drunk, or, or done drugs, or slept around. Here's the truth. Every one of us are in the midst of a profoundly life-giving, redemptive story that God is writing in the world, and we don't deserve to be there. None of us do. You owe, you owe a day's wage? Fine. You're still unable to pay and God has said, forgiven. Man, I need to begin to live as a person overflowing with gratitude. Why? Because I look back and I see God's hand in my story. And when I look back on my own story, this is what I see. Me running, God grabbing me and pulling me back over and over and over again. And when I just think about it a little bit, I'm profoundly grateful. Huh. I mean, adopted into a family that gave me faith in Christ. And that led to 
early encounters with this radical notion that Christ is enough so that when my dad died and I gave up on God, I can look back and say, yes, I did give up on God when my dad died, but God didn't give up on me. God put me in a dorm uh, where I met Christians who loved me and accepted me and invited me. And invited me to a ski retreat that I put on the calendar for all the wrong reasons. And then I went there and the whole course of my life was changed. I got a calling. I, 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 I received uh, a, a sense that God wanted to be my friend and guide and companion and provider and lover. And I learned all that going on a ski retreat only because I wanted to meet a blonde. That's the only reason. Look at what God has done, right? Now, every day, every sunrise, every glass of wine, every thunderstorm, every cup of coffee, every chance to preach, every run around Green Lake, every hug, every good conversation with friends, every communion, every walk after supper, every prayer with someone, every, every element of life, almost every element, 99%, a gift of God. And I'm like this, I don't deserve any of it. I've sinned so often, God would be just if I were vaporized on stage right now and I'm still in God's story. Amen? I'm so grateful, aren't you? I, I mean, I hope so. So I rejoice, give thanks, and worship. Not Simon. He's a good boy. Obedient, intellectual, upstanding. He's built a life of righteousness. Boom. Hear me. Nobody built a life of righteousness. You don't build it alone. Whether you choose to believe it or not, God's the one who gave you teachers and parents and clean water and a good mind and money in the bank and food on the table and revelation regarding Christ. Or if your life's been terrible, God's the one giving you signs along the way of God's love. And here you are today seeking God either way. But Simon sees none of it. He knows theology. He's religious. He's devout. He's not guilty. He's the older brother in the prodigal story. He's done it all right. And, and he, he just wants everyone to see how good he is. And so he does not respond in love because he's never seen God as loving. Huh. Man. Rather than living a life of wonder... At each person he encounters, he's developed the unfortunate habit of judging and putting people into categories. Sinner, righteous. Prophet, false prophet. He's got it all figured out, but wrong. Look, you and I, as we live this life, we either see with the eyes of wonder and we overflow with gratitude, or we choose safety, preservation of our, our, of our reputation, because of fear or pride or bitterness or something, and then we lose the chance to love, and that's sad because we're made to love. Uh, my granddaughter, who I see on Skype from Germany, has taught me so much about this very point of love. And here's why. When she's hurt, she runs to her parents. Uh, when, when she's happy, she runs to her parents. When a jackhammer is doing construction in their apartment in Germany, she covers her ears and runs and sits on her mom's lap until the jackhammer's over. When she's afraid, when she's happy, when she's lonely, when she's hungry, when she's thirsty, when she's full, when she's tired, when she wakes up, where is she? Mom, dad, those who... I, that's love, do you understand? That's love. Just running into the arms of the one you love. What did Jesus say? Unless you have faith like children, you're missing it, my paraphrase. 
You're not real. <laughs> Yesterday, you know, I was skiing uphill with my little skins on my skis, all alone, headphones on, random playlist, and this crazy song by Chris Rice comes on with his reprise, Come to Jesus. Come, man, come to Jesus when you're aware of sin and you need forgiveness. And I think about all the times that I've sinned and, and, and God's given me forgiveness. Come to Jesus when you stumble. And I think about all the times I've stumbled. Come to Jesus when it's dark and I think about the death of my dad and the death of friends and friends battling with cancer and, and a staff member whose dad just died or is close to dying and, and others in our congregation at death's door. People have lost children. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus when you're full. Come to Jesus when you're dying. And just come, oh, come to Jesus over and over again. By the time the song was over, the song ended just as I got to the top of this ridge. And so I took my headphones off and I took my sunglasses off to dry my eyes because I'm weeping with gratitude. These two skiers come up to me. You okay? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm okay, I said. What's going on? This is all I said, I'm in love. I'm in love. And then I tried to change the subject. You have the same skis as me. Ooh, it's good. <laughs> hey, uh, come to Jesus. What we're going to do here is just listen to that song. And then I'll frame a time to respond as we worship together.